Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi, my name is Jeremy Frank. I'm here to welcome you to a much needed episode of Opera Happy Hour. I find myself looking to art and specifically opera for answers, for solace, sometimes just to be distracted, but always for hope. I'm inspired by how artists and opera creators are often able to reflect on tragedy, but also point a way forward. My hope is that you too will take time now more than ever to bring more opera, more music, and more stories into your lives. If you've been asking yourself what it means to be American in these times, you are not alone. And while it's tempting to wade into those waters, for the purposes of our Opera Happy Hour, I want to shift our focus to some parallel existential questions. What does it mean for opera to be American? What makes our culture's artistic voice different from the voices that originated this art form? And if we have made our own unique mark on the genre, what can other cultures take as inspiration? Over the last 15 episodes, we've explored dozens of musical examples, largely drawn from the standard operatic repertoire. But now, let's explore operas written during our lifetimes by our people, so that we can learn what they have to say about our contemporary lives and the American culture. One of the most distinctive features of American opera, and indeed American classical music in general, is its unparalleled eclecticism. Of the three American composers we'll explore, Andre Previn, Philip Glass, and Anthony Davis, all three of them freely draw from influences including traditional classical music, jazz, film, rock and roll, pop, R&B, gospel, non-Western music, African music, Indonesian gamelan, and experimental music. Now, Obviously, that is a composite list of influences, but whether you view America as a melting pot or a salad bowl of influences, each of these three composers creates their own unique voice from multiple musical styles and philosophies, and they do this to a far greater extent than their Eurocentric operatic ancestors. These American composers mine our country's best modern literature and even take headlines right from the newspaper to engage us emotionally and to force us to use our conscience to reflect ethically on the lives of the characters they depict. Now, we didn't invent that. I'd argue that it is a modern version of the ancient Greek concept of catharsis, and it still serves to renew and restore us and helps challenge us to find ways to move forward together as a society. Now, many of you probably already know that cocktail culture is quintessentially American, and because of that, I thought we'd go all the way back and make America's 
and the world's first real cocktail. This is a Sazerac, named for the famed New Orleans Sazerac Coffee House, which started slinging these way back in 1850. You start with a sugar cube that you soak in Peychaud's bitters. Then you add two ounces of rye whiskey and stir with ice. Your bartender will rinse the serving glass with absinthe, which thankfully no longer contains the hallucinogenic wormwood that the original version had. Then everything is strained into the serving glass. The drink is usually served up, and this time we've served with no garnish. Some people believe that toasting originated as a form of sacrificial libations in which a sacred liquid was offered to the gods as a prayer. If there were ever a time that we need this kind of toast, it's right now. So my toast for tonight, based on our three musical examples, is this. May we learn the lessons of a former Southern belle named Blanche and stay tethered to reality, even when it's painful to face, May we learn the lesson of an ancient Egyptian pharaoh and avoid isolating ourselves from our society. And may we be inspired from our shared American history to search out the truth, even when it contradicts what we believe it should be. Cheers. The first musical example I'd like to show you is the aria I Want Magic from Andre Previn's setting of A Streetcar Named Desire, which premiered at San Francisco Opera in 1989, starring Renee Fleming and LA Opera's own Rod Guilfrey. The opera is based on Tennessee Williams' play of the same name, which is considered to be one of the finest American plays of the 20th century, and in 1951 was made into a famous film starring Vivian Lee, Kim Hunter, and Marlon Brando. In the opera, we meet Blanche Dubois, a grand southern belle who moves in with her sister Stella and Stella's husband Stanley. They live in a cramped, shabby two-room flat in the New Orleans French Quarter. We know that Blanche's young husband has died, that she has lost the family plantation Belle Reve, and that she has taken a leave of absence from her job teaching English, allegedly because of her nerves. Though Stella welcomes her sister, there are just too many suspicious explanations that don't quite add up for the violent-tempered and callously unrefined Stanley. Over the weeks that Blanche lives with them, household tensions percolate dangerously. But Blanche meets Mitch, a poker-playing buddy of Stanley's. Mitch is courteous and friendly, and his flirtations with Blanche quickly become much more serious. In fact, she hopes it's only a matter of time before she and Mitch marry and she can go off with him and not be a problem to anyone anymore. One night, though, Stanley learns gossip about the reality of Blanche's desperate and impoverished existence. Her husband has taken his own life, and Blanche was fired from her teaching job after getting involved with an underage student. After losing the family home, she ended up living in a hotel known for tolerating sex work, until she was forcibly required to leave the hotel and even the town. 
Stanley, in a heartless ploy to get Blanche out of his house forever, repeats all of this gossip to Mitch, Blanche's boyfriend. Devastated and angry, Mitch comes to confront Blanche about all of her lies and delusions, saying he wants to be realistic about who she is. In lush, sensuous music, Blanche tells Mitch, I do misrepresent things. I don't tell the truth, but I tell what ought to be the truth. And she convinces herself that she has gotten Mitch to join her in the delusion of an alternate reality. Mitch flatly rejects her and calls her a liar, which triggers the beginning of an actual psychotic break within Blanche's mind. The opera ends with her being led off by a doctor and nurse to be institutionalized. I've asked my friend, the soprano Jamie Chamberlain, to join me to sing this aria for us. Jamie is a singer and actress of tremendous versatility, and she's performed with the LA Phil, LA Opera, Long Beach Opera, and the Pacific Opera Project, just to name a few, frequently featuring the music of living composers. Although she and I recorded this performance separately and remotely, I'm so happy with how it turned out. And I think you'll agree with me that Jamie's performance is not only expressive and beautiful, but also a shimmering example of just how dangerous it can be to deceive yourself. Thank you. 
Our second musical excerpt comes to us from the pianist and composer Philip Glass, who is arguably one of the most influential and prolific composers in the late 20th and 21st century. If his name doesn't ring a bell from his iconic association with musical minimalism, you might know him for his influence on composers across the musical spectrum, from David Bowie to Coldplay, or from his collaborations with artists like Paul Simon, Mick Jagger, and the Talking Heads, or from his copious film scores, including the music for the movie The Hours. We'll be digging way back to the early 1980s when Glass was completing his groundbreaking Portrait Trilogy, a group of three operas which serve as musical meditations on the lives and personalities of Einstein in the opera Einstein on the Beach, Gandhi in the piece Setyagraha, and the ancient Egyptian pharaoh and father of King Tut, Amenhotep IV, or Akhenaten, in the opera of the same name. As I mentioned, many people associate Glass's musical style with the spare and stripped-down minimalism movement, but Glass himself says that he is, quote, a composer of music with repetitive structures. I personally find that description very apt. In fact, some of the scenes of Akhenaten, Glass sneakily writes musical depictions of the pyramids themselves. For instance, if he writes three musical phrases, phrase A, B, and C, he'll set one statement of phrase A, followed by two repeats of phrase B, and then three of phrase C. In a way, he musically draws the outline of a pyramid, but in horizontal musical time. Unless you're listening really carefully, even meditatively, you'll completely miss out on these meta-patterns. But even so, if you like the sound of this music, you'll experience performances of glass as I do, some of the most hauntingly moving theater experiences you can find. The excerpt I'd like to sing for you comes from Act Two and is the first part of Akhenaten's Hymn to the Sun. To give you a little context, Akhenaten lived in the 14th century BCE, and in a stark contrast to both his predecessors and his ancestors, he sought to reject the polytheistic traditions of ancient Egypt and establish a monotheistic religion centered around the worship of the sun. This hymn of praise occurs at the apex of his new religion, just before the previous polytheistic priests violently revolt and tear down Akhenaten's forward-looking but very insular religion. They ultimately bury him, forgotten and unrevered in the annals of history. Before you listen to me sing this excerpt, you need to know two very important things. First, the role of Akhenaten is normally sung by a special type of voice, in this case, a countertenor. That's a male singer who sings in a range even higher than a tenor, and normally around the range that a female mezzo-soprano would sing. To accomplish this amazing feat, countertenors spend most of their time singing in falsetto. You can think kind of, of the Bee Gees, but way more beautiful than that. 
Of course, I will not be singing in my falsetto, but if you're curious to hear what this type of voice sounds like, you can check out recordings by Anthony Roth Costanza, who sang the title role of Akhenaten at LA Opera when we did this piece in 2016, or check out the outstanding countertenor John Holliday, an LA Opera artist who also sings gospel and jazz, and who appeared on NBC's The Voice last season. The other thing that you need to know about this music to enjoy it is that it's probably going to feel like nothing is actually happening. And for this style, that is perfectly normal. You can also think about musical minimalism as if the music itself is a giant kaleidoscope of sound. If we turn the dial at the end of the kaleidoscope slowly enough, the colored tiles of harmony and motive will slowly morph and change, but you'll watch or hear the evolution and development slowly take place before your eyes and ears. It's a truly mesmerizing effect. And it sounds something like this. Let's close with a riveting musical example from an opera premiered here in California less than two years ago, Anthony Davis's The Central Park Five. Mr. Davis is a prolific opera composer and has been called the Dean of African American Opera Composers. And this piece, which had its debut in 2019 at Long Beach Opera, won Davis and his librettist Richard Wesley a Pulitzer Prize for Music in 2020. The opera centers on the real-life story of five African-American and Latino boys between the ages of 14 and 16 who were falsely accused and convicted of a savage attack and sexual assault in New York's Central Park in the spring of 1989. This case is widely regarded to be one of the most egregious miscarriages of criminal justice during the late 20th century. The case was grossly mishandled by members of the NYPD, who interrogated the boys for at least seven hours each, without any legal counsel, and in many cases, even without the presence of the boys' parents. 
Despite glaring inconsistencies and inaccuracies in the boys' stories, no eyewitnesses and no DNA evidence linking any of them to the crime, the boys were coerced to make videotaped confessions, which became the crux of the prosecution's case and led to their convictions and sentences of 5 to 15 years each. Corey Wise, the oldest of the falsely convicted boys, met a man named Matias Reyes while serving out his sentence on Rikers Island in 2001. Reyes was serving a life sentence for serial rape and murder, and though he had never been identified as a suspect in the Central Park case, after meeting Corey Wise, he came forward to confess to the attack and assault of the victim. His confession was confirmed by DNA testing, which had improved significantly in the intervening years. With this new confession, the original convictions of the Central Park Five were vacated. Corey Wise was released from prison, and the five of them were ultimately awarded a $41 million settlement from the city of New York for malicious prosecution, with an additional $3.9 million awarded from the state of New York. Now, all of this has been thoroughly and very thoughtfully documented, reported, and explored through a 2012 documentary by Ken Burns. And though most of the five young men have pursued inspiring and decorated careers in criminal justice reform after their convictions were vacated, the death threats that they and their families received at the time of trial and the larger aftermath of their incarcerations for crimes that they didn't commit forever altered the lives of all these falsely convicted men. And it's this human part of the story, full of a wide palette of emotional dynamics, from grief to righteous anger, that opera is capable of capturing without equal. Corey Wise, the only boy old enough at the time to have been tried as an adult, reflects on the high price of what was stolen from him with his unjust imprisonment. To help me breathe life into this excerpt, I'm so thrilled to be able to invite my friend, tenor Nathan Graner, to join me in a performance of Corey's aria. We are especially lucky because Nathan originated the role in 2019. And like Jamie, Nathan is gifted in interpreting contemporary music. He has sung throughout our country and abroad, and he's created characters in world premiere operas at Long Beach Opera and Chicago Opera Theater. And as you're about to hear, Nathan perfectly marries this intense and at times unabashedly dissonant music to the roiling emotions of a young man newly freed and unjustly burdened with the task of reconstructing his entire life from nothing. Take it away, oh, 
I don't know about you, but I find that music very moving. I can't thank Nathan and Jamie enough for joining me. If you have enjoyed their performances as much as I have, I invite you to check them out online, including on LA Opera's own website. During the pandemic, these two, who are actually married in real life, starred in a brilliant program called Sing Out Loud which introduces kids to opera and keeps them making music while at home. As always, I will encourage you to check out the LA Opera Relief Fund. We're so thankful for the generosity that you've shown us so far and want to encourage you to keep going. And just so you know, there will be many more episodes of Opera Happy Hour. We're slowing production to about once a month, but we've got some interesting themes planned and some special guests. In the meantime, Stay healthy, stay happy, and cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.